0: We are in the midst of a set of Jesus' teaching on discipleship, uh, predominantly in light of his first and second coming, which should transform, therefore, all of our current priorities. That since he has come in his advent, which we are celebrating, and he will return a second time, that that changes drastically how we live in the here and in the now, Uh, especially as to how we view or pursue our material wants and needs. And in the passage prior... Jesus has effectively just called somebody a fool, which is not a word that he normally uses. But there's something foolish about that which gripped this man's heart and how that very thing had deadened him to greater realities. He had this inordinate concern for the things of the world. Jesus is headed to the cross. His enemies are ramping up their opposition to him. And to prepare his followers, he's been preaching to them. He preached on hypocrisy, fake religion, the fear of God versus the fear of man. He's preached about heaven and hell, the acknowledgement of Jesus being the defining factor about any of us for all of eternity. He has spoken about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and how his disciples are going to be brought before synagogues and rulers and authorities, and not gently, but that the Holy Spirit will be there in their time of need to be their wisdom. I mean, Jesus is really trying to prepare his people to feel the weight, uh, the gravity of being faithful in this short little life that what is eternal is what matters most and that our loyalty to our God in the here and in the now is how any of us will be measured. And, And a man in the crowd, he hears all of that and in response to all of that, he cries out, teacher, can you tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me? It's as if throughout the entire time that Jesus is preaching, he's just crunching numbers in his head and thinking that my biggest issue in this life is getting paid. Because there's something about covetousness and that desire for more, uh, this attachment to worldly things, there's something about all of that which can make us so dense to the words of Jesus and deaden us spiritually. To which Jesus gives him a parable about a rich fool who hoards his wealth and has plans for bigger barn houses to store it all, to make it last and to grow for years and years, because life really is measured by all of this security and equity. And now my ease of relaxing, eating, and drinking Mary is secured, and then this fool loses his life that very night and loses his soul for all of eternity. Jesus' thesis of his parable is one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life is more than about what you own, even if you could own everything. Life is not measured by what we have, so we don't have to go daydreaming about what we don't have. We shouldn't desire more and more things. Why make life about acquiring more equity, toys to play with, fancy food to eat? You can easily squander your life if that's what you're living for when you could have lived richly towards God instead. But not everyone is in the position of multiple barn houses and increasing forms of wealth and massive stock portfolios and a variety of real estate investments. Not everyone is about relaxing and eating, drinking and being merry. Some just want to eat something and drink something and we are more concerned uh, and are more concerned with bare necessities that this life requires rather than luxuries. And yet even that can still distract us from what is central. Jesus in our text is focusing his time Uh, in his teaching, on his followers, who've actually left all to follow him. They left career, job, family, home, friends. And they, therefore, may be a little bit anxious because of that, especially because Jesus is going to be taken away from them soon and hung up on a cross for all to see. And we read in verse 22. And he said to his disciples, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Life is about more than what we often make it to be. If there's a false sense of security to the wealthy barnhouse builder in the parable prior, there's a false sense of anxiety to the less than wealthy about food and clothing and other material necessities. Again, we're not talking about luxury. We're talking about need and how we worry about it. Jesus is commanding us not to be anxious about these very things. And this is perhaps where more of us are at. We're not trying to gain the whole world, we're just trying to get by. But even trying to get by, even that, can captivate our hearts and our minds as much as the wealthy wanting to get more and more. For them, their thesis needs to be, life does not consist in the abundance of my possessions. For the rest, the thesis needs to be, life is actually more than food and the body more than clothing because there can be two kinds of fools. That's what Dale Ralph Davis says, the one with bigger barns and the one who worries about skimpy pantries. One is preoccupied over the abundance he has, another over the deficiency he fears. Both of these are foolish, And while the application may look different in the coveting, the principle is exactly the same, that there can exist in our minds and our hearts an excessive worry about material things in this world and a consuming anxiety over that which is temporal, which then really distracts us from life itself. Jesus is speaking to those here who are anxious and trying to make ends meet. Because the rich, the middle, the poor, we are all prone to overly devoting our minds to things which do not last at all, and therefore not giving much attention to those very things which actually do. This preoccupation with the material can spiritually kill the rich and the poor alike and make us stance to what ultimately matters. And Jesus' thesis to most of us this morning is life is more. It's about more than food. And the body is more than clothing. We can't define our living by what we have or don't have. Life is so much more than this, and we really need to believe this because we often will judge the quality of our own lives and judge our own God and his love for us by whether or not he gives to us what we think we need. If he does or doesn't give us what we want and desire, our bodies and our lives are created and given for something much higher than that. They're created and given for the glory of God and the kingdom of God. Our our lives are not to be reduced to bellies we fill up and bodies to dress up like mannequins, Philip Ryken puts it. When we're anxious about food and clothing, primarily all the time, we're reducing our existence to stomachs as buckets to be filled and mannequins to dress up with the latest trends. Your life, each of our lives are meant for so much more because they're meant for God and the glory of his kingdom. More, not Less. But if we really want to believe Jesus here, that we don't have to be anxious, we, we can't do that passively. Jesus is not minimizing necessities. He's not belittling that concern. Uh, but he asks us to use our minds here. He wants us to think through things with faith in him. And so he gives to us a series of arguments in verse 24. Look at them with me here. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these." But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the fields today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? There is a direct and inverse connection that Jesus makes here with anxiety and our faith in him to the degree that we worry about material things is to the degree that we don't trust in God. And to the degree that we do have faith in him is to the degree that we're freed from worry over our necessities. This is why Jesus declares those to those who are anxious about food and clothing, "O oh, you of little faith, because there is a kind of worry. This kind of worry is primarily a faith and belief issue more than it is anything else. Now, often uh, people think of faith as being blind, unthinking, that, that you just have to have faith. And kind of close your eyes and plug your ears and believe in something that doesn't have much evidence and things are just going to turn out okay. But Jesus actually wants his people to be a thinking and intellectual people and desires that our faith and our belief is one of the mind. The greatest commandment includes love the Lord your God with all your heart. It also says love the Lord your God with all your mind. And here he directs us uh, not to appeal for anxiety, or to a list of secular therapists, or to medicinal pākālolo, Jesus directs us here to look at birds and flowers. And sandwiched between these visuals is a logical argument to the ineffectiveness of worry overall. Jesus is reasoning with his people because he wants us to think rationally so that our faith might be fueled. First, the ravens. Jesus is arguing if God feeds ravens, he's going to feed you. The fact that ravens are alive today means that they eat something, and you know who feeds them? God does. He's going to feed you too. Ravens in the Jewish mind are are disgusting scavengers. They eat corpses for survival. So nasty are these birds in this culture that even the Jewish law prevented anyone from eating their meat because they were considered filthy animals. They aren't ants with redeeming qualities like good infrastructure and leadership and work ethic and planning. We can learn a lot from ants too. But they don't do that. They don't have barn houses like the rich man in the parable. They don't have checking accounts, deeds to land, lease agreements, grocery stores, jobs. They don't sow, nor do they reap. They have and they do nothing except circle around and dive and eat dead things. And yet they are alive and well. And Jesus is saying, you are worth more than they are worth to me. Your continuing, their continuing existence should preach to you that God is a God of provision. If we would just consider the ravens and that word there, consider, it means to observe to think, to contemplate, to reflect on. If we would observe, contemplate, think, reflect on things like ravens and how little effort they put forth to staying alive and yet they live and they eat, perhaps if we do that, we will understand more and more the care that God has for unclean animals and understand more therefore and have this renewed confidence that God is going to care for you. That doesn't mean we don't sow, reap or have savings. Ravens are not an example to follow. But an example of an animal that doesn't really deserve to eat and yet still eats because God feeds it. If God feeds ravens, He's going to feed you. And the second visual is the lilies. If God clothes plants, He's going to clothe you. And these lilies are not wearing burlap sacks, they're actually clothed quite beautifully, even more so than the most famously known king in all of Israel's history for luxury, wisdom, beauty, and majesty. Solomon had people dye his robes and gather fancy materials and had gold and jewels and wealth and a decked-out palace. And yet a simple flower with its color and vibrancy, Solomon in all his splendor could not emulate. And the most expensive of dyes, they can't copy chlorophyll. I mean, you can fix up your house all year long with the finest materials and one sunset beats it all. Nothing that we can do can beat God's provision in creation's visible manifestation of beautiful creativity. These lilies, which may not even be lilies like we think of them, but just a term here for wildflowers, they last a day, and then it's burned. If God clothes them like this to put on display for mere hours, and they don't spin nor do they toil, brothers and sisters, we as eternal creatures... Made in God's image, called his beloved, Christ's bride, his church, his people. Consider them, observe, contemplate, reflect, think on that. If he's going to clothe them like this, of course he's going to clothe you who have much more value than they. He dresses plants better than kings. Now, is it really this simple? Jesus does think, seem to think so to spend time looking at creation, continually being sustained to fuel our confidence that he's going to sustain us as well. Again, that doesn't mean we don't toil or spin. It doesn't mean to copy ravens or lilies. Work hard, but don't worry. Put your hours in, but don't be anxious about it. The birds and the flowers teach us about a God who provides for things less than us. We need to consider this very fact and have a trust in him that dispels anxiety. Now, sandwiched between these two visuals, Jesus says this, and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? What Jesus is saying is all you're worrying, it frankly doesn't work. Anxiety is ineffectual. It's powerless, it's impotent. Brothers and sisters, we can spend hours staring at the ceiling in the dark of the night, worrying about inflation, the rising cost of living, HECO, and another rate adjustment. That doesn't seem to make any sense, how 10% can effectively double your bill. I don't know what kind of math they use. And we can toss and we can turn and dwell on this hypothetical situation playing out or that one instead, and all we have to show for it the next day is bags under our eyes, stress-induced eating, tension in the neck, restlessness, and irritability. And did we lower HECOs rates by doing any of that? Did we reverse inflation by staring holes into the ceiling? Did we add a single hour to the length of our lives? We probably subtracted some. All of that effort does not produce a single thing. It doesn't cook a single meal. It does not create a single t-shirt. Anxiety over these, worry about the future, does not actually change that future. But what we often do is call worry planning so that we can justify worry, which is a vice, and somehow make it a virtue. Anxiety over material needs is futile, it's vain, It's fruitless, it's unproductive, and yet somehow we all do it. And when we do do it, we aren't using our God-given minds correctly. We need to use our minds to fuel our faith rather than chip away at it. Lay in bed and think about birds and flowers, and then go to bed. Fall asleep with a renewed confidence in the sovereign care of our God, because often we need to trust him more and trust our immediate feelings a lot less. The ravens preach, trust your God, squawk, squawk. The lilies proclaim, trust your God. And if you're prone to being a worry ward, Jesus simply states, you're spinning your wheels. You're actually accomplishing nothing in the process. But worry, however common, is, is not something that is actually innocent at all, even though most of us do it. It is counterproductive to right thinking. It is antagonistic to our faith and found in direct and inverse proportion to it. But anxiety over the material and worry about food and clothing can actually uncover something much deeper and more deadly. Look with me in verse 29. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. What we seek tells us what we are. If we seek the world and the things in the world, we are like the unbelieving nations of the world. If we seek God's kingdom and his glory, we are his very own. What we seek tells us what we are. The distinguishing characteristic of the nations, the world, is that they are fatherless. And they have this need to be anxious about food and drink because this is everything that's ultimate. And so I'm going to seek after that. The distinguishing characteristic of the Christian, the believer, in contrast, is that we have a father who takes care of food and drink and what we need for a living so that we are now free to seek his kingdom instead. When we are consumed with worry over the necessities of life, we are acting like we don't have a father who art in heaven and who gives us our daily bread. Worry and anxiety over our material needs is not an innocent little sin just because everyone seems to do it. Worry and anxiety over material needs is acting like an orphan when we have a father who has given us his son and has given us himself and has given us his spirit and everything that we need for godliness. And we need to feel the weight of what our worry is proclaiming. It proclaims with the father right next to us, he ain't gonna take care of me. I gotta take care of me. I'm anxious because I have no security. I'm utterly stressed because I am utterly alone in this. When we do this, we function and act more like children of this world than children of our Heavenly Father. Our anxiety is not innocent, brothers and sisters. Listen to Matthew Henry: When inordinate cares prevail over us, we should think, what am I, a Christian or a heathen? That's what he says. That's how we should think. That's what Jesus is saying, too. You're acting like the nations of the world. When inordinate cares prevail over us, we should think, what am I, a Christian or a heathen, baptized or unbaptized? If a Christian, if baptized, shall I rank myself with Gentiles and join with them in their pursuits? To the degree that we are filled with worry is to the degree that we act godlessly. I mean, can you imagine if one of our little kids is talking to a friend at practice and lamenting over the fact that, I don't know if I'm going to eat dinner today. I can't focus. This might be my only set of clothes. I mean, how offensive would that be to any parent with means? Of course, we're going to give you food. We know what you need, we care for you. Our Father knows exactly what we need. We must not act like orphans. And so Jesus here is so firm in spelling out what our worry proclaims. And yet at the same time, Jesus is soft as well. He draws a line in one sense. You worry, you act like the godless nations of the world seeking after what to eat and drink, hard distinction. And yet there is a softness. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, my father knows that you need them, idiots. He says, your father knows that you need them. What Jesus is doing in this reassuring softness is that he is giving to us this ultimate security based on relationship, that my father is your father, which in effect is calling himself our brother. Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus is saying that we are near kinsmen. He puts himself on an equality with them when, so speaking, at once he lifts them up to himself while he goes down to them. And brothers and sisters, look at our Savior. I go down to you to lift you up to me. I descend so that I may raise you to see Yahweh, God Almighty, the same way that I see them in a relationship that can only be expressed by the term Father. And your Father, because He is yours. He knows what you need. So you don't got to be worried about what you need. Because you have better and more important things to pursue than food and clothing verse 31, Jesus says, instead, because we can't do both things at the same time, instead seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. What does that mean to seek his kingdom? To set your heart on the kingdom, to make the kingdom our main objective, to think about the kingdom, to pursue the kingdom, that I live for God's kingdom. Jesus commissions us here to a higher standard of life than scavenging for food and clothing with anxiety. He lifts our chins to look upward and lifts us to a life that is much more than food or being a mannequin to display some kind of trend. J.C. Ryle, on what it means to seek the kingdom, he says this, we are not to give our principal thoughts to the things of this world. We are not so to live as if we had nothing but a body. We are to live like beings who have immortal souls to be lost or saved, a death to die, a God to meet, a judgment to expect, and an eternity in heaven or in hell awaiting us. When can we be said to seek the kingdom of God? We do so when we make it the chief business of our lives to secure a place in the number of saved people. To have our sins pardoned, our hearts renewed, and ourselves made fit for the inheritance of the saints in light, We do so when we give primary place in our minds to the interests of God's kingdom, when we labor to increase the number of God's subjects, when we strive to maintain God's cause and advance God's glory in the world. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom worth laboring for. All other kingdoms, sooner or later, decay and pass away. The statesmen who raise them are like men who build houses of cards or children who make palaces of sand on the seashore. The wealth which constitutes their greatness is as liable to melt away as the snow in spring. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom which shall endure forever. Happy are those who belong to it. Love it, live for it, pray for it, and labor for its increase and prosperity. Their labor shall not be in vain. Whatever else you seek, seek first the kingdom of God. Life is meant to be lived. The very purpose of our lives is to seek God and to seek his kingdom. Anything else, quite frankly, is a lowered standard of living. And I think it's interesting, and I wonder if you ever thought that what really puts food on the table and what really puts clothes on our backs is not even seeking that food or clothing at all, but seeking something much higher than that. That that is when God adds those things to you because you trust your Father enough to provide and believe that when he says, go for this, not for that, I'm gonna give you that anyway, we actually believe it. And so what we seek after tells us what we are. If we seek the things of the world, we are like the unbelieving nations of the world. If we seek God's kingdom, we are his very own. The distinguishing characteristic of the Christian, the believer, is that we have a father who takes care of the food and drink and whatnot so that we are free to seek this instead. What we seek tells us what we are. And most of us would be happy if the text and sermon ended right there at this point. But Jesus continues in verse 32 and onward, and he spells out more this detachment from worldly things. Look with me in verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus, on the way to the cross, with a very finite time left with his followers, he wants our treasure and our hearts to be with him in the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, there really, really is uh, there really, there really are only two ways to live. We like the nations live for ourselves, seek the things of this world. The other is to live like we have a father and a brother in Christ, and to live for God and seek His kingdom instead of ours. You can't do both things at the same time. You can't. Our hearts will follow where we put our treasure. Whether our hearts are with bigger barn houses or giving ourselves to worry about skimby pantries, mindlessly scrolling through online catalogs and social media to increase our hunger for what's here, then our hearts will be here. If we come with Jesus to higher planes and to a better kingdom, our hearts are going to soar to something that is eternal and will never fade away. Now, Jesus could have used this concluding verses as this opportunity to be really frank and really stern. He could stay point blank. I'm going to to the cross to pay for your sins because I love you that much. I'm going to suffer and endure the wrath of God against your iniquity. I'm going to suffer hell, not because I deserve it, but because you deserve it. I'll be the righteous who takes the place of the unrighteous. I will die so that I can defeat death and the power of sin in my resurrection to free you all. And the least, the least thing you could do for me is sell what you have, give to those in need, and seek my kingdom. I mean, come on, I'm gonna sacrifice for you, so you better sacrifice for me. And there wouldn't actually be anything technically wrong in those words if he so chose to use them. But that's not what Jesus does here. He's not into this guilt-driven obedience. He says, fear not, little flock. And there's this tenderness here, the double diminutive, little flock. And I call uh, my little son Trenty boy. It's a diminutive. It's a, it's a term of affection. Because our great shepherd knows that if we live like he is asking us to live, we are going to be little. We are going to be a minority. As this little flock of sheep in the midst of wolves and the world that moves in the opposite direction. And he knows that that can be a very fearful existence. And so Jesus consoles us, fear not, little flock. He consoles us with endearment. Anytime that you feel like you are a believing minority, anytime that when you are amongst your friends out there and they're living for the world and you're kind of weird to them and you feel so strange because you live for a higher kingdom, we have to just tune our ears to the voice of Christ who tells you, fear not, You are part of my flock. Why? Because he says, it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, to give you the kingdom. We don't earn the kingdom by being generous. I'm going to do this, God, so you owe me the kingdom later. No, your father, not my father, your father, it pleases him to give to you what is actually his alone. That God's kingdom might be given to us is altogether amazing. And yet this gift of grace is not coming from a heart filled with reluctance. The God who gives you his son and his spirit, almost nothing pleases him more than to give you his kingdom as well. He loves you and wants to give us all what is only is. There's not an ounce of guilt-driven obedience that Jesus is calling his followers to here. No, I sacrifice for you. You better sacrifice for me. No, it's a little flock. Your father, his pleasure to give you this. Seek this. And it's not even actually a sacrifice. And this is where we have to use our minds to fuel our faith again. Jesus reasons with us when your hearts seek the kingdom. Your grip on things in this life, it starts to get really loose. When we replace things-seeking with kingdom-seeking, the quote from John Piper last Sunday, when we replace things-seeking with kingdom-seeking, we can actually begin to let go of things a lot more easily. Now, again, this is not targeted at the barn house builder who has a lot of excess cash. That guy doesn't have to sell to give anything. He's just like, what do you need? Here you go. But I want you to notice that, that the people he's talking to here, they do have things. They might not have an excess of things, but they do have things. Jesus doesn't say, give away your clothing and share your food, because that's all you have, food and clothing. Because he knows you have food and clothing. And he also knows that you have stuff. And oftentimes it is for us that the rich guy down the aisle, we think, well that guy really needs to hear this, because he needs to give money to that mission. She really needs to perk up her ears. She has so much, look at her fancy ride, she really needs to give to the church. And that is often our defense mechanism against being generous, I'm not in the position to do so. Jesus is actually asking his disciples to sell stuff, to lower their standard of living so that they might become more generous, to loosen their grip on stuff and tighten their grip on the kingdom because this is a better investment anyway. What is to come can never be stolen. It doesn't deteriorate like treasures here do. It's secure, and our hearts need to be here. Now, this is for every believer, not just for the barnhouse wealthy. This is for every follower of Jesus Christ. And we actually have to be really real with ourselves because we have a lot of stuff. Most of us have a tree in our house right now with presents underneath it. And it's not just a tree, but we put jewelry on a tree, An indoor tree, we put jewelry on it, and lights, and we put a crown on its head. We aren't worried about if we're gonna eat, we're worried about if what we eat is picture worthy. We're not worried if we're gonna have clothes to wear, we're worried about what brand of clothes, and if it matches. We are not in this situation that these disciples are in. Can you imagine explaining to one of these disciples, I really am not in a position to be generous. I mean, I got to clothe my tree, wear lights, put a star on its... I mean, let's be real. Most of us, if we had to fund the Great Commission, we wouldn't have to sell anything. We could fund from our excess, unlike the targeted audience in our text. We are a people of great excess, who still worry that we're not gonna get what we need. And we just think that other people with more access, they're supposed to shoulder all the responsibility. And we are frankly missing out on an opportunity to invest in a kingdom that does not grow old and a treasure that does not fail, reserved in heaven for you. Because if we can't loosen our grip on this and tighten it on that, then I don't know what we believe, brothers and sisters. We can't loosen on this to give to those who are most in need. I mean, the present and perishing world is in deep need of Jesus Christ. There is a vast spiritual poverty and a material poverty as well among those who do not know the Father like we know the Father. What the world needs most is the kingdom of God. And so where is your treasure, church family, and where is your heart primarily? This is from a commentator I read this week. He says, Show me a person who cannot give to others, and I'll show you a person who does not believe the Father gives to him. Show me a person who cannot lend, and I'll show you a person who doubts she has greater riches in the kingdom of heaven. Show me a person who cannot part with things, and I'll show you a person who does not believe the treasures in heaven are better. It is that simple. Our life follows our treasure. Where is your treasure, church family, and where is your heart? Again, like the passage from last Sunday, this is not meant to stir up feelings of guilt so that we can feel bad about our purchases for the next few hours. It's meant to challenge us to real-life change. Jesus doesn't want to guilt his followers in this text. He tries to enable them for a more secure and internal investment. And if we just stop and feel guilty and go home and say nothing, we wasted the passage. We have to stop and consider lilies and birds and the ineffectiveness of worry and if we're living for this kingdom or that kingdom and sit down with our families and take the time. I mean, this is where it becomes no nonsense. You look at your credit card statement, you look at your bank, bank statement and you know exactly what it is you value most in this life. That doesn't lie to us. And so it might be time to review our investments with our family, devote a half a day to see where is our treasure, where is our heart and adjust it accordingly and it will be very easy to see if our hearts are in the kingdom or if our hearts are his. Uh, would you please pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for your lavishness, your riches uh, in grace. Oh, Lord, We we need that grace we're so prone to live like you don't take care of us. We're we're so prone to think that life is so much more sophisticated than looking at birds and lilies, and and we have to be so complex and and all of these things, otherwise we're not going to survive. Father, would you just put your arms around us from time to time and let us know uh, undeniably that you are our Father and that you love us, and that you delight to give us your kingdom like you delighted to give us your son in his first advent. And I pray that as we look towards his second advent, God, that you would loosen our grip upon this world. Give us eyes to see the next one. Lift our chins and our hearts to a higher standard of living than we currently have, and give us great confidence that these investments are not made in vain. Father, we know you... You don't really care about our money. You care about our hearts and what we treasure. And I pray by your Holy Spirit that more and more we would treasure Jesus Christ with all of our hearts and that our lives would reflect that very worship. Father, we love you, and, and we want to love you even more. Would you, by your mercy, enable us to do just that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.